Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement policy and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. My guest today is one of the leading figures in the antitrust world. Trained as a lawyer at the universities of Bonn and Lausanne, he then joined the German Federal Ministry of Economics before working in the parliamentary group of the Free Democratic Party. He joined the Federal Cartel Office in 2000 and became its president in 2009. He's also a leading figure on the international scene, having chaired the ICN Steering Committee for almost a decade. I'm delighted to welcome Andreas Mundt. Andreas, I'd like to begin with the digital economy. You've been a longtime critic of big tech and have been at the forefront of agencies vying to apply competition rules to the leading digital platforms and advocating for the introduction of regulatory regimes. Some, though, have expressed concerns that certain of the criticisms you've voiced about big tech are unrelated to the extent or otherwise of competition and that the remedies that you're proposing risk extending antitrust enforcement into areas it's not well suited for. So what's your reaction to that critique? Yeah, Nick, many thanks for the question. Well, in fact, the digital economy has has brought lots of new phenomena to the economy in general. Um, Before we knew so much about the digital economy, many people hadn't even heard of network effects. They hadn't even heard about data-driven business models, hadn't even heard about data-driven dominance. What I want to say is that these companies have stretched the border of the economy in a way. And since competition law is a breathing law, I think it is obvious that we have, in a way, to stretch the border of competition law in order to keep pace. Um, That can be a bit compared um, to what is happening right now. We will come back to this later, maybe in times of crisis. We are not more lenient in times of crisis, but we look at the competitive pressure that is there. And it's a bit the same with the digital economy. We are not tougher, but we have to look at new phenomena. We have to look at new criteria uh, for dominance and all these features, uh, you see. Um, and I think this is why, if, if you look, if you have to look at data, well, you have you have to you have to find parameters. You have to find criteria how to assess data, since data is so highly relevant for the business models of some companies, and it is definitely highly relevant for assessing the market power of the, some of these uh, companies. We all know about the three V: velocity, variety, and and volume. And this is exactly, I believe, what we have done, for example, uh, in the Facebook case, when we had to assess the question of of dominance of Facebook. Well, and um, some have wondered uh, in the course of that case, if we have become an agency to, to assess GDPR, but in fact, we only took GDPR as a benchmark what is allowed in order to process users' data and um, what is not allowed. So we made use of a criteria that was in place that had been established by the legislator and that we would have to replace by some other criteria that we should have invented ourselves, maybe, kind of a competition data assessment. 
well, where we took what was in place, and that's exactly the way the way it went. And well, we got some support so far far from Advocate General Rantos at the ECJ in in the Facebook case, and now we wait what the ECJ would say. Presumably, though, Andreas, you accept that competition law can't be the tool that addresses every issue that's identified with respect to the digital platforms. That there must, at some point, be a limit to the way in which the existing rules can be applied without leading some to say, well, they've lost all real focus. They were originally about choice and consumer welfare and competition. They can't be about every ill that um, is identified with a particular sector or platform or business model. Yeah, but Nick, I, I think we're not, we are clearly not going beyond that uh, so far. I mean, that, that is obvious to me by the way we all we always talk about the consumer welfare standard i mean i would like to quote jonathan Cantor at the aba meeting in washington last year who said well that is not so easy about the um, about the consumer welfare standard because a standard is set because it's clear and every know knows what is meant by that and he doubted a little bit if if the consumer welfare standard um, serves the purpose in the digital uh, world at all times and at all questions. I mean, it is not in vain that during the debate about Section 19a here in Germany and the DMA um, at the EU level, we talked and discussed very much about the structural preconditions for competition and that we had to re-establish these, these conditions, these structural conditions. That reminds me a bit of an approach of a long time ago, which in, in my view has always been a complement to the consumer welfare standard. And I always understood it in a way that we in Bonn at the Bundeskartellamt always had both approaches in mind when we applied competition law. And this is why maybe also we early on touched upon these digital issues, because in my mind, they go a bit beyond the question of consumer welfare. They go to the question if we still have the structural preconditions for competition in some markets. You know, this, this question comes up in, in, in these circumstances. This is why I firmly believe we have not overstretched our mandate. We will not overstretch our mandate, but we have to find ways how to assess properly data-driven dominance. And here I, I'm, I'm confident and I, I'm hopeful that the European Court of Justice maybe will, will pave us the way also a little bit, not only for the German competition agency, but maybe for competition agencies in Europe. And who knows, maybe even beyond. You touched on regulation and obviously one of the most notable developments of the past few years has been the introduction of regulation at EU and national level um, uh, in respect of the digital platforms. So I'd like to ask a question about the EU's Digital Markets Act and Germany's sister piece of legislation, the ARC Digitalization Act that you referred to. You've expressed some misgivings about what you term the DMA's static list of prohibited conduct and what you've termed its self-enforcing nature and have championed the ARC's more flexible approach. Two or three questions. Can you elaborate on what you mean? And in particular, once the DMA enters into force, 
what role do you see for the ARC? And a final question, if I may, given that the DMA is designed to harmonize enforcement across the EU, how do you see the two regimes interacting? Yeah, Nick, I mean, first of all, I'm pretty sure the DMA will be a powerful tool. Uh, there is no doubt because it sets a no framework. It is clear that the commission is the sole enforcer uh, of the DMA. It is also clear that national competition agencies uh, can provide support, for example, through investigations. Um, so uh, there is a role also, though I admit a limited role for competition agencies to, to support the comp in, in applying uh, and enforcing the DMA. Section 19A is, is different uh, from the DMA, it's competition law. Whereas the DMA, I don't know if it is really if it is really regulation that remains to be seen, but it's at, at least much closer. Um, DG Comp and Margrethe Westerger always said it, it is as clear as possible in order to make it self-enforcing. And um, I mean, I doubt that it will be completely self-enforcing. I doubt that very much, uh, to be frank. Um, Take self-preferencing as an example. Um, I think most people might agree, competition people might agree that self-preferencing is a valid theory of harm in the digital world. That is not the point. And that is spelled out also in the DMA. The question begins when is when, when it comes to the to the point, is a certain conduct self-preferencing? That is the point. And I always said, what, what, what happens if the company comes into the commission and says, well, I'm doing this and that, my, my algorithm looks like this and that, um, but I firmly believe this is not self-preferencing and I'm DMA compliant. So what do you do as an agency? You send out a questionnaire and you do a market investigation. And that doesn't mean it is not really self-enforcing. Self this is all I mean, you know. Um, the DMA has the big advantage um, that it has clear-cut theories of harm that is extremely helpful, that facilitates the debate with the companies, um, I'm absolutely sure, but still you have to fill these clear-cut theories of harm with life and you have to still have to define if a certain conduct meets um, that theory of harm. The other thing is Necessarily, the DMA has a static list of conduct because it is supposed to be self-enforcing. If this is so, um, it is not. Um, it, 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 it is. It is clear. It had to look at the past, at cases that have been done uh, all over the world, and had included the theories of harm that have been developed during these cases uh, into the DMA, which also means it. It is a bit backward-looking. And it, it doesn't catch new behavior. Maybe it doesn't behave, it doesn't catch conduct and behavior that intends to circumvent um, the theories of harm, the do's and don'ts of, of, the, of the DMA. And here again, this is where competition law, be it national, be it um, European, be it special national competition law like Section 19A comes in again and can be a complement uh, to, um, to the DMA. Besides, last but not least, the DMA is only valid for core platform services. And there will be uh, another task to define what are really core platform services. And if you have a certain behavior of one of these companies of big tech, 
in the area of a service that is not a core platform service, again, uh, Article 101, 102, and Section 19A come in. And here, I think, especially for the Bundeskartellamt, there might be a role um, because there are not many member states that have such a specified provision on big tech like Germany with regard to Section 19A. So maybe we can be helpful here as a complement um, to, to the to DT Comp in the future. Thanks, Andreas. So you really see the German legislation as being a complement rather than something that's going yeah. to be inconsistent with it. Sounds like you wouldn't be troubled if every member state were to introduce an equivalent to 19A um, and apply it in whatever way they thought appropriate. Although with your harmonization, with your ICN harmonization hat on, I'm wondering whether that might trouble you slightly. Yeah, I mean, here we're talking about the ECN firstly, you know, and we want to make it work here, uh, here in Europe. Many, many countries around the world think about new rules in this respect. Look at the ACCC. Gina Kasgottlieb has just called for a new regime. They have a special regime for ancillary copyright rules uh, in, in, in Australia. So there, there is a lot going on. Maybe we can still touch on that later on with regard to the ICN. But um, um, I, 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 the idea is always the same. The path is somewhat different, but we agree very much on, on the fact that we need to do something. Very good. I'd like to move on to a different topic, if I may. Um, you've suggested, I think, that there's a stronger case for applying competition rules to address privacy concerns and the use of data by big tech than there is for using those rules to achieve sustainability goals. Sustainability, obviously, being one of the other great issues of our time. And you've said they're not closely linked to the original parameters of competition law. So what's your thinking on the circumstances in which competition law could or should be relaxed to address the climate crisis and the scope for taking account of sustainability goals in antitrust enforcement? Well, I think it's hard to compare um, uh, uh, the role of data in the digital economy and sustainability because I think that sustainability is clearly a much broader concept um, that, that needs to be applied in, in a much broader way. Um, and one thing is, is clear as well, um, more and more sustainability is becoming a, a parameter of competition. Because to a certain extent, I also think we go into kind of a new era of of market economies, because the key driver at the, for the time being for sustainability, in my mind, is not so much the state, is not so much state regulation, but it's very much the companies themselves, because the employees expect sustainability in, in their companies. Um, the clients expect sustainability, you know, the society expects um, uh, sustainability and more and more, I believe that companies themselves become real drivers of sustainability. That is a very interesting development with regard to the economy um, as, uh, as, a, as a whole. Um, well, we, we have looked at many sustainability initiatives here in, in the Bundeskartellamt several years. We also try, and I think, I think here we are, we are really, we're doing quite an extensive job in giving guidance to companies, you know, 
many companies come up and, uh, with initiatives say, say, look, here and there, we want to go beyond what is required on a legal, in legal terms, but we want to do more. And we give guidance, does this work or does this not work? Is this in line with competition law or not? Think of the animal welfare initiative, uh, think of fair trade systems, living wages in the banana sector, quite far reaching already from my perception. Uh, we have a couple of uh, initiatives in the milk sector and we solve these cases for the time being uh, on the basis of making use of our discretion. And we say, we're not going to intervene uh, if you do it like this uh, and, and like that. By the way, I personally believe competition and sustainability don't get in the way. They're not contradictory to each other. No sustainability without innovation to an extent we have never seen before. And we know that competition is the key driver for that. So in a way it goes hand in hand. Um, if it goes beyond the legal requirements, we have to look at it. If it comes to agreements, we have to look at it on a competition point of view. We did that in, in, um, in many areas, as I said, we have tolerated most of the initiatives that, that come to us. There were rare cases uh, where we have not clear, uh, uh, where we have not cleared the initiative. Mostly, by the way, if we only saw surcharges on prices, but very little sustainability, you know. Uh, we, 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 we find it hard to agree to um, initiatives that say, well, we have higher costs, we, we just need more money, and this is it, you know. This is a, a bit, a bit, this is not enough for, for such an initiative. But usually we find a way to strike the balance. The key problem that I see for the future, for example, if laws are changes, what is the understanding of sustainability? I know some policymakers, you have an extremely broad understanding of sustainability. In fact, um, they take ESG criteria, economic, uh, ecologic, social, and governance criteria. And if you, if you understand it like that, you quickly come on, on a slippery slope uh, with regard to the politicization of competition law. We are not there yet. This is what I fear a little bit for the time being. I think we can handle it. We have very much supported the DG Comp in developing their guidelines, their horizontal guidelines, which included a chapter on sustainability. I think that is all um, that is all on a good on a good path. We will see if we need legislation. Personally, I do believe we could do without it, given all the cases that we have managed successfully so far. Thanks, Andreas. So it sounds like you'd be broadly sympathetic to a collaboration that might entail some modest reduction in competition, but nonetheless might accelerate some sustainability objective. Absolutely. We, we, we support these uh, initiatives um, on the precondition um, that they really include measures that support sustainability for the future. It cannot only be about money. Very good. Let me turn to merger enforcement. Last year, you joined the CMA and the ACCC in issuing a statement supporting, and I quote, the need for rigorous and effective merger enforcement. And some interpreted that statement, which was unusual, I have to say, and extremely interesting, as suggesting that you collectively believe that merger control had been under-enforced in recent years. Certainly, Andrea Cacelli at the uh, CMA has uh, has said uh, some things to that effect. 
do you agree with that interpretation? Um, and do you think that the EU and the US agencies um, on reflection have been too permissive and should now be more interventionist? Nick, I'm not judging anyone, anybody, and any agency. Um, my, my motive uh, on, on, this, um, uh, on this was uh, largely that I think that in these times where in some areas we see very concentrated markets, um, we must give more weight, all of us, to merger control as the best sword um, that we have, in fact. I think this is, this is what matters. Um, and this is why uh, I became part of this uh, initiative. We have seen how lengthy and how rocky abuse cases are. We have seen how difficult it is to find remedies uh, in the course of these cases. We have seen how difficult it is to enforce. And here I see a high risk of um, over enforcement, of under enforcement. And the, the joint merger statement, um, as it stands, was very much centered around the digital economy. Uh, that is very important uh, to see. We have seen lots of mergers in the digital economy over the last years. Um, if you think of Google DoubleClick, Facebook, Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, Google Fitbit, hard to challenge them, no one to blame. This is not the point, um, but it is really important that we make use and that we are able to make use of this sword um, and of this. I also remind you of Meta Customer, a case that we have cleared with much unease here at the Bundeskartell. Um, but here we come to a second point. How difficult is it to block these kind of mergers and how high have the courts lifted the bar in order uh, in uh, the bar for blocking these kind of mergers. We have just recently had a conference here at the Bundeskartellamt with 90 people from the academic sector. The topic was merger control in the digital age. And the key question uh, on, on this conference was, can problematic mergers in the digital economy be caught and prohibited by the currently applicable rules? This is my clock, which is from 1866, and I cannot stop it because really disturbing it. So we have to wait. <laughs> so should we interpret one of the other um, ideas, proposals you have for legislative change that would introduce uh, rules similar to the UK's um, that would allow the FCO, after it's conducted an inquiry of a sector, to order behavioral or structural remedies to restore effective competition. Should we understand that as, as an attempt maybe to try to correct uh, the approval of transactions that with hindsight perhaps have led to undue concentration or just part of a general attempt to expand the scope of competition law enforcement in Germany? I mean, this amendment uh, is still in a, in a very uh, early phase, I must say. So we will see what will become out of it. I think the political debate in Germany about this amendment is just about uh, is just about to to start. Now, one thing is important: this is not designed for the digital economy because this is designed for the for the for the economy as a whole in in Germany. It doesn't have a focus on on digital 
It is true. Um, it has some similarities with the CMA approach and the previous discussion at the EU level about the new competition tool. It's, it's quite close to it. We would welcome some strengthening of competition law. We could focus then on markets where competition law does not uh, work very well. There have been concentrations under the radar of merger control over the times in last years in some, in some areas. Um, we could, we could make, make use of this tool. I do not think so much of breaking up companies. I mean, this is always immediately discussed if you have this kind of tool uh, before your eyes. I think what, what is more important, you can go for some behavioral remedies, you can go for structural remedies, but that doesn't necessarily always need to be a breakup um, of, comp of companies. By the way, this is not so new for us. Uh, we have dissolved parts um, of the asphalt industry already in 2015. Uh, we had the same kind of issues in, in the sandline bricks sector, in chemicals trading. So in fact, uh, this has been done also with competition law in the past, but we all know how lengthy this is. So I think it's a compliment, this new tool, if it really comes up. Um, and then we will see what we can make out of this. So one of the interesting themes that have been touched on in some of the podcasts um, that we've recorded has been the role of the courts. And as you know, in the US, the FTC and the DOJ have to go to court to enjoin a merger and the courts have, um, uh, have not supported them in a number of uh, recent cases. Um, in the UK, uh, the, the, uh, the appeals tribunal has been pretty supportive in the merger area. Um, in Brussels or in Luxembourg, uh, something of a mixed record. How do you view the courts in Germany as, as a friend to the process, as a, a good discipline? Um, or if you were king for a day or for another decade, would you look to recalibrate perhaps the relationship between uh, the, the um, administration uh, and the courts? Well, it's, it's hard to say we have a good relation with the courts because that would sound... <laughs> That would sound a bit strange as well. But one thing is for sure, we have a specialized court here in, in Germany at both levels. Uh, we have six senates at the higher regional court in Dusseldorf, which are specialized on competition law, public procurement law and, and regulation. And we are very happy um, that in Karlsruhe at the federal Supreme Court, uh, we have a cartel senate that is specialized in competition law matters. I find this extremely helpful because you do not end up with, um, with judges who once in a while do a competition case, but they really know what they, what they talk about and um, they're, they're highly experienced. Um, the, the, the standard of proof in Germany is extremely high. Uh, that is all the more true in cartel cases, uh, because when we go to court, um, we have to do it all again. We hear all the witnesses again. We read all the papers again. We have to present all the documents again. It's a bit a court system that we have in, in, uh, in cartel cases here in Germany. With regard to mergers, um, I think, I'm not so sure, but it seems to be a trend that courts, maybe without even being aware of it, have, have risen the bar in the merger area. 
um, we have we have seen that at the European level, we see that European Commission sometimes has its its uh, its problems to bring the blocking of mergers through court. We've seen that in the Hutchinson case. We have something. Um, we have seen something which which is very much alike here in Germany in the furniture industries. It was one of the of the rare SIEC gap cases which we thought brought to court. Also here, in my perception, the court has has raised the bar quite high to block um, to block that merger. Um, so this is where our deliberations stem from, especially in the digital economy. If maybe we should try to lower the bar, the burden of proof a little bit. Um, if we should, if we need to work a bit more with the shift of the burden of proof. We also thought about some new statutory um, uh, regulation, for example, with regard to companies um, which already have significant uh, power and, and dominance um, across markets, Section 19A companies, you know. So this is what we are thinking of. It's not a proposal so far, but it's something that needs to be discussed in order to make sure that we would still be able also to block mergers, which are maybe likely to, to distort competition in the future, but where it is very, very difficult for agencies to prove that. Thanks, Andres. As you know well, there have been similar debates in, all, in the UK and elsewhere on the burden of proof, the standard of proof, and so forth. So sounds like it's uh, very much watched this space in Germany. Um, let me turn to a, another topic in uh, merger control, uh, the jurisdictional thresholds of the merger regulation and the possible existence of a gap that allows so-called killer acquisitions to escape scrutiny at EU and national levels. As you know well, to address that gap, the European Commission evolved uh, its Article 22 policy in a 2021 guidance paper that encourages national agencies to refer to the European Commission transactions they believe may be anti-competitive, but which fall below their own national merger control thresholds. You've expressed concerns about killer acquisitions, but while some agency heads in Europe have welcomed uh, the, the uh, guidance paper and the Commission's Article 22 policy, you've been skeptical, some might say even critical of that policy. Can you explain why and what you do instead? Well, Nick, first of all, let me say, um, I like the result of the EU policy. I think it is important to scrutinize some of these mergers, which might fall uh, below any threshold. If, the, if DG Comp gets to examine and possibly challenge killer acquisitions, um, I think this is certainly a good thing. Uh, the Commission has chosen this approach via Article 22. We've seen the ruling in Illumina Grail. I can, what I can tell you, Nick, today is uh, Article 22 offers you a right to refer the case. It is not an obligation uh, by, by a national competition agency. So all we say, in fact, is that if we do not have the competence to uh, scrutinize a case, we also do not see a competence to refer it uh, to, the, to the EU Commission which means, in fact, 
we do not make use of the right uh, that we have. In fact, this is all. Um, we had some, some uh, unfortunate proceedings uh, with regard to MetaCustomer. Um, on the other hand, also we have to apply the law. MetaCustomer was a case that came to us uh, under the, um, trans uh, the transaction value threshold. Uh, we, we had to examine if we really had a domestic impact or not. That took some time. It was not easy. It was the first time, by the way, it was that difficult in such a case. In the very end, we came to the result. Um, we had a domestic impact, but then we didn't refer it anymore. It was too late, just as simple as that. But we should not exaggerate these kind of cases come along very, very uh, seldomly. There will, there will be very rare also uh, in the future. By the way, now we wait for the European Court of Justice to take a decision uh, in Illumina Grail, and then we will see and uh, scrutinize again our own practice. This is what I can tell you today. So it sounds like you're saying you're not uncomfortable with the possibility that might exist, but but as a matter of principle almost, um, uh, at least under your helm, the FCO is going to be reluctant to, to exercise the possibility that the guidance paper has created. As I, as I said, if we do not have an own competence to assess a case, it is not so easy for us to say, then we refer this case uh, to the European Commission. But again, let's wait what the European Court of Justice will say, and then we will revisit uh, these questions, of course. Thank you very much. So let me turn to cartel enforcement. Under your leadership, as you know, the cartel office has uncovered cartels in a range of industries, many of which came to light through leniency applications. At the same time, you've been an advocate of follow-on damages actions. And some have said that the spectre of such actions has chilled companies' readiness to apply for leniency, and as a result, that some cartels are going undetected. Now, your response to that has been to suggest that immunity applicants, so the companies that come in first, could be exempted from damages actions. Some have made the observation that that wouldn't be fair to injured third parties or compatible with the EC damages directives. There are obviously trade-offs here, as there are in all areas of life. What's your reaction? What's your observation on that trade-off? Well, Nick, first of all, let me say that leniency in cartel matters is maybe more important than in other areas of, of crime protection, because it, it, with cartels, we need the leniency program to find the infringement. That is different from many other areas. Normally, you need a leniency program in order to find the offender. But you know that there has been a crime or, or whatever. In, in, in cartels, that is different. You, they, are, they are secret, you know? You, so you need leniency. And this makes leniency in cartel matters different from anything else. You need leniency to find the infringement. So, this is why leniency is such a highly valuable uh, instrument. We have seen a sharp decline of leniency applications uh, here in Germany. We come from something like 56 in 2016 to something around 10 or even less uh, in 2021, 22. So we are worried about the leniency programs. 
I think there are many reasons for the decline. Maybe to a certain extent, we have more compliance uh, in companies. Not so sure that we really have less cartels, but very difficult to do a sector inquiry on this question. So how do you find that you have less cartels? But again, there might be many, many reasons, but I'm, I'm pretty sure and talking to many economists, lawyers, uh, they tell you that um, the decline also has at least something to do uh, with the damages directive and the, and the fact that we see private litigation, private damages to this extent. And um, this is, we firmly believe that private enforcement contributes to the effectiveness of antitrust enforcement and uh, it, it contributes to its deterrent effects. It is very important to strike the right balance. And this is why we do not suggest to fully exempt immunity applicants from any damage uh, actions, but I think we should consider uh, making it a general secondary subordinate liability. Um, that is our point. Also with regard uh, to, to their own customers. And that would mean, in fact, that the leniency applicant's liability would generally be restricted to the situation where, where full damages cannot be maintained from the other participants in the cartel. This is, this is in general what we think. Uh, additionally, the immunity applicant could be released from liability as far as the internal settlement with, between the cartel the catalyst is concerned. These would be some changes um, that we think about. I put it very carefully because this is all meant for the first one to come in for leniency. Personally, I'm also very worried about the second, third and fourth one because we also need them in order to prove a cartel, exactly under the high um, uh, burden of proof here in Germany. So I think with regard to all these questions, I would say we're still at the beginning uh, of the debate and not at the end. Uh, and we, not, we must think this through in order to make sure that we safeguard the incentive for the first one to come in, and do not forget about the subsequent cartelists, which also contribute to a very large degree um, to the investigation in cartel cases. And how to strike that balance correctly. And um, if, if our deliberation, I wouldn't call it a proposal, if our deliberation so far meets all these needs, I'm not so sure. So I firmly believe we're at the beginning of the debate in Germany, at the European level, worldwide, and we will see where it takes us. We're truly at a fascinating time in antitrust uh, enforcement, and you've touched on, we've touched on a number of areas where it's clear that the cartel office is um, a thought leader in um, uh, considering those issues and trying to think creatively about how the existing rules could perhaps be extended or, or changed. As you know, one of the most interesting areas of debate at the moment um, concerns the long-established uh, principles, the consumer welfare standard that we talked about earlier, that has come under critical scrutiny maybe for the first time in years, and the consensus that's really held for about 20 years about the purpose of antitrust law has increasingly been called into question, at least by some. 
And with that uncertainty surely comes a greater risk of divergence between antitrust agencies, even if you believe, as I think you do, that it's right to, um, to challenge the consensus. As chair of the ICN, you've been a longstanding champion of convergence and the importance of what you term familiarity and trust built as a result of the multilateral cooperation in the ICN and global standards. Are you concerned about divergence and perhaps the greater risk of it as agencies begin to go their own way? And what do you see as the biggest challenges to multilateral cooperation and the ICN's mission over the next few years? I'm not so much worried about convergence, but I heavily care for convergence. And I think that convergence and consistency are very important for the legitimacy of uh, the actions of competition agencies around the world. And um, at the same time, convergence and consistency gets all the more important, it gets all the more difficult because more and more we are confronted with worldwide business models, for example, in the digital sphere, which also means that all the more we have to take care that we take a joint perspective on certain issues, that we, if we impose remedies, we at least go in the same direction, that we do not impose contradicting uh, remedies um, and all these kind of matters. And this is why I believe that the fora that we have play a more important role. Um, that is not only the ICN, that is also the, the OECD, the competition committee. Um, to a certain extent, this is also UNCTAD, but I firmly believe that in this sense, maybe the ICN is the most important fora because it is the, the well, how to put it, it's the forum of the competition agencies that who can really speak up there to each other. We have 142 members now, of course, that is true. We have no rulemaking function, but we have achieved already a lot through soft law. I mean, the, the ICM provides a, a comprehensive encyclopedia of competition law. When you look back at the Berlin conference this year, uh, we brought together 450 representatives from more than 80 countries, more than, more, more, more than 80, 80 authorities. A key topic was digital, um, so we, we care for that. Another important topic was uh, sustainability. Um, at the same time, we try to maintain our work in the core issues of competition law, in cartel law, in merger, in merger control, in, in, other, in other areas. So I'm concerned about divergence, but I think we cannot do enough in, in these fora, be it OECD, ICN, in order uh, in order to go for uh, for convergence. And I think we have achieved a lot. Um, for example, with regard to the digital economy, I, I remember the ICM conference in Porto that was back in 2016, not so such a long time ago, where digital didn't play the role yet, it should have played already. And we, we brought it on the agenda. I gave a speech in, in Porto and not everyone was so assured already that digital would be, would be so important, which has changed dramatically. Everyone thinks today how knows how, how important it is. If you look at the legislative initiatives around the world, they are in a way similar in substance. And I firmly believe this is why, uh, this is because we talked so much to each other. I mean, 
In Brussels, these companies are called core platform services. In the UK, they are called companies of a strategic market status. In Germany, they are companies um, with significance for uh, competition across markets. That might be different in a way because it is adjusted uh, to the laws that you have in place. But we all mean the same, in fact, you know. Uh, and this is not only happening here, it's also happening uh, now in the US. If you think of the American Choice and Innovation Act or the Access Act, that goes very much in the same direction as uh, the DMA. And if you look at, at down under at the ACCC, very much the same idea uh, as in Europe. And you can look at Asia, our Korean colleagues doing a lot in this area. Uh, in Japan, a lot happening. So what I, I'm saying, we do what we can. And I think we are successful. And I think also, we talk so much to each other in, in cases um, that we really are able at least to achieve consistency in quite a tremendous way. And I would like to remind you, there is no legal basis for this. We do this on our own behalf. And this is uh, what I foster also in the ICN to include as many countries as possible in this exercise, also attracting young agencies, new agencies to make them aware. We're all working on this. There are great cases. Um, there is a great fundament of law. So look at it. We should go in the same direction. So, yes, um, consistency and convergence is something that, that we should look at closely. But I also believe there's really a lot happening in this respect. Beyond that, if you look at the ECN, I think with in terms of cooperation with the DMA and Section 19A um, and, and other attempts by other competition agencies, we really go into kind of even closer competition uh, cooperation than in the past in the framework of the ECM. Thanks, Andreas. So communication, essential, cooperation, uh, essential, consistency, convergence, very highly desirable. There may be some exceptional cases where agencies uh, diverge somewhat, but if it's not inconsistent divergency, um, then maybe it's not to be criticized or be too concerned about. Yeah, Nick, you can see from the fact how few cases there are in which we diverge. You can see from the fact that if ever there is a case where you have the slightest divergence, it's subject to at least hundreds of conferences. You know, think of the booking case. What would we have, what would we have done? in this debate about convergence without the booking case, you know? We wouldn't have anything, we wouldn't have had anything to discuss, you see. <laughs> Very good. Before we go to our uh, quickfire uh, questions at the end, um, I'd like to ask you a question that was suggested to me by a law student who spent a few weeks with me, Jake Lawson, this summer, um, when we were thinking about this podcast. Um, and I think it's a great question. So. You've been active in taking on companies that you believe have entrenched positions of market power. Yet over the decade you've headed the FCO, the German Football League has been dominated by the same football team, Bayern Munich. What are your plans to deal with this situation? 
Well, we, we, you know, we never intervene on the behalf of a certain competitor, and we do not go against a certain successful company. But one thing is for sure, um, we are active with regard, especially to football. We have two cases going on here. One is on the question uh, if a private investor may own more than 50% um, of, a, of a football club or not. That is something that is under scrutiny of the Bundeskartellamt. And we are in, in talks uh, with the Football Association on this question. The second one is when it comes uh, to the procurement of the rights on, on uh, the football league. Um, that is also uh, accompanied by the Bundeskartellamt in order to make sure this is all in line with competition rules. Another case where we give lots of guidance. So we care for competition also among football clubs. But again, we are not intervening to the detriment of a certain club or not in favor of a certain club. Thank you very much. So to the quick fire questions. Firstly, if you could change one thing about German antitrust law, what would it be? You know, in Germany, we go from one amendment to the other, um, and many wishes that we have and had have been fulfilled. So in antitrust, I'm quite fine. What I miss sometimes are rights in consumer protection law, because, because some things you cannot achieve with antitrust laws, you could achieve with consumer protection laws. And I envy a little bit the colleagues around the globe who have these kind of competencies, and who make use of them uh, in, in some cases, I think that, that, we, that, that I would be very happy with that. So it's more a complement to antitrust, not so much antitrust itself. So consumer law as part of an agency's remit, sector inquiries with a possibility for remedies, sounds like you're a little envious of the UK regime, which is uh, interesting, delightful to hear. Second quickfire question, what's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? My proudest achievement, in fact, is um, that the Bundeskartellamt is where it is um, and that we are a well-functioning competition agency um, that we try to apply in a way that, that really follows the economy, um, that we take meaningful decisions, that we have a good reputation in the business community, also uh, in the policy arena. I think that is the proudest achievement. The greatest regret, to be frank, um, that happens every day. Um, if something is not as it should be, if something goes wrong, and I think that is maybe like in a law firm, sometimes something goes wrong. Huh? Uh, that is also my, my, my greatest uh, regret. That's too true. The time to worry is when things are going well, because yeah. you know they may not last forever. And finally, Andreas, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that isn't widely known? I have no idea. So many things about, are known about me. I'm in this arena for such a long time. I mean, I could, talk, I could tell you now about walking my dog and these kind of things and how much I like this. <laughs> but the, the, the things that people need to know about me, they are known. Andreas Munn, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating hour. I've really enjoyed it. Hope our listeners have too. Thank you for tuning in. Look forward to welcoming you all to the next edition of the Cleary Gottlieb Antitrust Review.